The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today, on the history of literature, maybe the greatest novelist ever. Marcel Proust. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. It has been a while, people, my friends. Many thanks to all of you who checked in, wondering how I'm doing, hoping I'm okay. I am okay. I'm in every sense. I am just okay. I am okay. I don't know how much to talk about me here and how much to talk about the show and how much to just get on with the business of literature. Maybe a little bit of everything. When I started the show, I set a few goals, and then I met those goals. So it made me reassess. Do I still want to do this? Even after I met my goals? It's a lot of work. Takes quite a bit of effort. Some things are fun. Thinking is fun. Talking is fun. Reading. Pretty much everything else. Editing interviews, the website, scheduling guests, sending emails publicizing the show, writing summaries of it, finding graphics, dealing with technical changes, all that is not so fun. It's work. I get paid a bit to do it from the Patreon account. Thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters, but it feels like a second job, a third job if you count family, which takes up at least as much time as my other job, which takes up a lot of time, a lot of time, a lot (laughs) So my thought process becomes, how do I do the fun parts and not the not fun parts? And I found that writing gave me some of that again. Writing, thinking about the books, planning them, writing them, pretty fun with none of the other work. The problem with writing, no audience. It's just me and the words for a long, long time. I could use an audience or what is the point, really? So I fell off the podcasting wagon and fell into the world of writing. Three novels drafted, a fourth one in the works, but no one to read them. And I miss the audience of the podcast, too. I do. I feel great about the people I've reached. Oh, sure, I've had a couple of haters along the way. I get deranged emails like anyone else, but the hundreds, maybe it's thousands by now, of beautiful messages that I've received telling me, that you enjoy the show. Wow. Getting a little choked up just thinking about it. I've never built a community like this one before. Maybe back in the blogging days, but that was on a smaller scale. This feels genuine and real, and I'm honored to be a part of it. Truly honored. And that's not something that's easy to set aside when you do a handful of good things in the world. Then you get one, it's like holding a beautiful vase in your hands. Maybe you've tried to make such a vase for a long time. Suddenly you do, and you're holding it, and it's fragile and delicate. Oh, a spider just ran across my desk. Do you kill spiders when you see them in your house? I confess, I don't. Not always. 
Gary Schneider had a poem about that, right? A haiku? Don't worry, spider. I keep house casually. I hope that's the poem. I didn't look it up. Do you kill spiders? Slaughter them? Smash them? I try not to kill anything if I can help it. Who am I to run around killing things? What gives me the power? When I was a kid, this neighbor came down and he and I had these toy hammers and we kneeled on our driveway, killing ants. Ants swarmed around, avoiding our hammer, and just for the heck of it, we pounded them. Just as a way to observe them, more than anything, their movement, they were infinite. And they darted around to avoid us, but they couldn't really avoid us. We pounded them. And I felt sick afterwards. Those little ants, thinking their little thoughts, what was I doing? I was probably about six. And now, years later, bugs in the house. My family screams. They all expect me to kill them, and sometimes I scoop them up and set them free outside. Sometimes I do the deed. Not about to let my kid get stung by a bee. I'll swat the bee. I have some perspective. But sometimes I'll see a little thing zipping across the table, and I'll reach toward it, and it disappears, and I think... Okay, little fella, die another day. We're all about live and let live around here. Where was I? The fragile and delicate vase, like this podcast. Not the podcast, who cares about that? It's ephemeral. The community of listeners, the ones who look forward to the next episode, who care enough to write to me and just say, hey, I missed the show. Hope all is well. Or hey, I like reading too. I got an email from someone who heard the episode where I ranked the Georges in literature. Greatest Georges in literary history. I had forgotten all about it. It was kind of off the cuff. Not something I ever set out to do. (laughs) That's not what inspired the podcast years ago. You know what the world needs? The Georges. They need to be ranked. But it came up. George Sand, George Eliot, George Bernard Shaw or George Bernard Shaw, the sneaky George, George Gordon, Lord Byron. I did a little top five, I think, and I screwed up. I opened up a loophole. I put Georges Simenon on the list, so I obviously was accepting foreign Georges. That was my mistake, because a reader said, my wife and I were wondering what happened to Jorge Luis Borges. Oh, How could I forget Borges? Darn it. One of my favorites of all time. And I just missed it. I always kind of thought of Jorge as a different name. Different from George. Jorge's a little cooler, but the best... (laughs) Sorry, George. To all those named George. But the best part about that email, the part that I enjoyed, the reason I'm bringing it up, my wife and I... My wife and I were wondering, two people in one household, listening to the podcast, sharing some time together, or maybe listening separately, but connecting in some way, talking about it. That's the fragile and delicate vase. That's the thing of beauty. It's a small thing. It's not some runaway train of a podcast. It's not some ESPN podcast or whatever's out there with billions of listeners. It was the top 
literary podcast for a while. Sorry, haters, <laughs> but it was. It's anyway, all the podcasts I have. So there you go. A fragile and delicate vase. A thing to celebrate, maybe to preserve. You don't just smash it to the floor. You don't stumble across the room and smash it against a wall like a dolt. You figure out something to do with it. Maybe you put it on a shelf somewhere. Maybe you keep holding it. Maybe you just try to make another one. Maybe you just don't know. So there we are. If you're interested in reading some books in progress, let me know. Maybe I could share some of that in some way. I can't promise anything. I have to be stingy about this. I have to jealously guard my time because otherwise the podcasting just can't get done. But anyway, let me know. I'm always happy to hear from you, even if I fall behind in my correspondence. I do try to get back to everyone eventually. Now, what have we talked about that sets up today's topic? Marcel Proust, the mighty Marcel. Well, the fragile and delicate vase comes to mind. He was in his sickbed for much of his adult life. But it wasn't just disease. I would say it was also a kind of paralysis of oversensitivity. I love the passages in Proust. And look, I haven't read all of Proust for years. I immersed myself in it in my early days when I had all the time in the world and I wanted nothing more than just to dive in and lose myself in his sentences. Those long and winding roads taking me on paths through the French countryside and the Parisian turn-of-the-century parties and the astonishing mind of Marcel. So a lot of this today, I'm working from memory which I guess is appropriate enough, given his project. I dip in and out now and then to refresh myself, but one of the key things I remember are those moments of oversensitivity. Marcel contemplates something beautiful, a cathedral, a piece of music, Venice, and he's so overwhelmed, he almost can't function. He breaks down. He can't take it. It's hard for him even to be there with that beauty. But then he is there, fully there. He's immersed in the world, observing it, every aspect of it rippling through him. He absorbs everything. That's the impression you get. Someone who has opened himself up, his whole body is like a black hole. It can pull everything into it. Maybe that's not the right metaphor. He's like a tuning fork, shivering. Except what strikes him is Everything his senses can take in, plus everything his mind can recall, plus everything his mind can put together, reason through, invent, establish. The world resonates through him. Kind of like that, so I'm going to say it again. Everything his senses can take in, plus everything his mind can recall, Plus, everything his mind can, what did I say, put together, reason through, everything his mind thinks about, that's his project. It's thousands of pages. It's more than a novel. I don't don't say that lightly. A novel can be just about anything. The loose, baggy monster, as Henry James called it. But this really is novel plus. Let's take a break. And we'll answer some questions. I could get overwhelmed here. I could be the one who breaks down, contemplating the beauty of Proust and his novel. I could talk for hours, days, 
a lifetime about Proust. Just lie in bed talking about him <laughs> for years. We'll stick to four questions. Number one, who was Proust? Number two, what's in his novel? Number three, what's his novel like? And number four, why do we care? Hmm. Oh, it's good to be back, people. I'm sorry I was gone so long. Marcel Proust and our four questions after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Valentine Louis-Georges... There's, there's another George. Valentine Louis-Georges-Eugène-Marcel Proust was born in July of 1871. His father, Adrian, was a well-known doctor who specialized in medicine and hygiene and the spread of diseases like cholera. His mother, Jean, was from a wealthy Jewish family. Young Marcel suffered from asthma and was generally treated like a bit of a flower, delicate and in need of extra care. He was a good student and made friends, including some who introduced him to the fabulous Salons of Paris. That was to have a lifelong impact. Everything about Proust had a lifelong impact. His mother introduced him to the works of John Ruskin. Lifelong impact. He was raised a Catholic. He didn't really practice it. He had his own kind of religion going, sort of atheistic and sort of mystical. But nevertheless, the early Catholicism had a lifelong impact. Maybe that's true of all of us. Everything that happens has a lifelong impact, but we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit in our story. The young Proust was viewed as a bit of an amateur and more than a bit of a snob, a social climber, kind of a dandy. He was deeply immersed in literature and art and art criticism. He was a fanatical devotee of Ruskin, the English critic his mother introduced him to. He was in the army for a year, but that was about it for non-literary work. He did some translations of Ruskin, although his English was a little spotty. He said, I don't claim to know English, I claim to know Ruskin. He was involved with some literary projects, literary reviews, magazines and journals, a society column, and so forth. He didn't really need to work. He had money, especially from his mother's side. He had relationships with other writers. He embarked on a novel and had plans for others. He was a 
a fan of fiction, big reader, fiction and philosophy. For fiction, he was reading Stendhal and Flaubert, George Eliot, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, some other things, but those were the great influences when it came to fiction. His influences on the philosophy side, Ruskin, Bergson, Montaigne, Carlyle, and Ralph Waldo Emerson. Threw in a bit of history and essays there too, I guess. Nonfiction, those are the those are his influences. He was putting together views on the role of art in society and life. He was becoming the Marcel we know from his masterpiece. I don't think I've named it yet. I don't think I've given you the title of his novel. I know the preferred translation is In Search of Lost Time. But when I read it, it was still common to call it Remembrance of Things Past. I have to confess, I still prefer that title. I'm sorry, I know. I'm probably wrong. I like the connection to Shakespeare. I don't have much of an argument for it other than I think it's a beautiful phrase, remembrance of things past. I think it's literary, and I think it contains for me everything that other people say the more literal translation gives you. In Search of Lost Time sounds to me like an H.G. Wells novel about going on some kind of sci-fi adventure. Remembrance of things past conjures up for me the beauty and majesty of a lifetime lived, recalled, and recorded. But you take whatever title you want. The important thing is what's in the book. But let's finish the story of Marcel first. He started writing in 1909 when he was 38 years old. And it came to take over his life. He spent the next 13 years working on it, pretty much full-time, writing and revising. The last three years of his life were more or less in bed due to the illness that would eventually take his life. He didn't finish revisions of the final three volumes, which were published posthumously. He revised them, but didn't finish the revisions. And he died of pneumonia in Paris in 1922, age 51. What's in the novel? Bruce's novel was published in seven volumes from 1913 to 1927. For some literary historical perspective, let's put it in some context. This was the era of giants of modernism. So here we go. The first volume, Swan's Way, came out in 1913. Joyce's first work, The Dubliners, came out a year later, in 1914. Kafka's The Metamorphosis, a year after that, 1915. Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, again, James Joyce, in 1916, which was also the year of Albert Einstein's Theory of Relativity. T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock came out in 1917. You can see where things are headed. D.H. Lawrence was publishing, Thomas Mann, Sigmund Freud, Edith Wharton. The second volume of Proust, Within a Budding Grove, was published in 1919. Scott Fitzgerald's first novel was a year later, published in 1920, along with Proust's third volume, The Garamond Way. Pirandello's Six Characters in Search of an Author came out in 1921. Proust again, with volume four, Cities of the Plain. 1922, what a year that was. Rilke's Duino Elegies, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, Eliot's The Wasteland, and James Joyce's Ulysses. 
That's also the year Proust passed away, with three more volumes still to come. We get The Captive in, 1925, in 1923. That's the fifth volume. And The Sweet Cheat Gone in 1925, the year in which The Great Gatsby was published. Kafka's The Trial came out in 1926, along with The Sun Also Rises, Hemingway's first novel. And in 1927, To the Lighthouse, Virginia Woolf, which was also the final installment of Proust's masterwork, Time Regained. Proust's achievement was hard to see in real time. It's the vastness of it, the scope, that takes one's breath away. Even if we were to take those seven volumes individually, and we could do that, they're all as long and as innovative and as major as the other works I've mentioned, they would dominate the landscape in their year. Taken together, all seven of them, as one novel, they are one of the towering creative achievements of the 20th century, or indeed, all of literature. Proust is in rare company. You will often encounter short lists of modernist authors. They'll say Proust, Joyce, and Kafka. Those three were incredible geniuses who changed literature forever. But there are also short lists of novelists. Here we might put Proust in the company of Tolstoy. Not many others breathe the same air as those two. It's extremely rarefied atmosphere. So, we read Proust because he is one of the greatest artists we've ever had, and what do we find there? In the first volume, we find a narrator in middle age recalling memories of his happy childhood. He gives us the late 19th century world and the grown-ups who inhabited it, his parents, and in the first volume, a man named Swan, and his relationship with the prostitute Odette. The narrator, Marcel, falls in love with Swan's daughter. All the characters, they come on, there's many others too, they, they come on stage in this first volume. They will return in later volumes, sometimes to be explored in great depth. I say sometimes, it's nearly always, it seems. Proust goes for high society, but they are often as corrupt as they are cultivated, full of human virtues, but also depravity. He is a bit of a snob, prizing connections and status, but he's also just as likely to be deeply attached to his grandmother and his mother and his housekeeper and the other decent people he knows. You root for the good people trying to do good things, and you are in awe of the bad people working for bad motives, and you recognize the pointless people doing frivolous things. There's a great line in John Cheever where he, in the letters of John Cheever, he talks about admiring Nabokov, even though Nabokov's world is one of magicians and butterflies, alchemists. Cheever says he himself grew up with a pair of his father's underwear hanging on a nail on the back of the bathroom door. That's Cheever. Says, I grew up with underwear on a nail on the door. <laughs> well, I could not have grown up in a background much more different from the high society of Paris. My high society out there in Wisconsin was an all-you-can-eat fish fry at a swanky restaurant that had a bar and carpeting on the walls. That was about as high as I got. And yet, 
I found myself taken in by the Parisian world of manners and culture and high civilization. The people were completely different, and yet they were totally the same. People are people. And what a great collection of characters there is. Madame Verderin, the autocratic hostess, the Dr. Cotard. There's a, a painter and an academic, one of the members everyone scorns. In later volumes, we see famous writers and Jewish prostitutes and friends that Marcel meets in the army. There's his grandmother and his housekeeper. They take trips to seaside resorts and encounter head waiters and lift operators. Marcel falls in love. In the book, he falls in love with women, but Proust himself was almost certainly gay and writes beautifully and with great sensitivity about gay men and homosexuality. He covers the Dreyfus affair and its effect on society. He details aristocrats and artists, officers, and actors. It's a world of the salon where slight snubs and witty remarks are right next to raging jealousies and devastating heartbreaks. Marcel also recalls an incident that Proust had in 1909 where he dips a cookie, the famous Madeleine, into tea. And the taste brings back vivid memories. The sensation returns him to his past. This isn't just a detail for Proust, just one of many things he's noticed about being human. It's essential to his project and to him. When he's at his lowest, when his heart is full of despair, he worries about growing older and the passage of time. He feels that his creative energies have come to nothing. He hasn't written the books he dreamed of writing and that he spent his life chasing bits of nothing. He has prized beauty and experience, and it has all faded. All he has left is meaninglessness. But, 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 he's not always this pessimistic. The Madeleine and other incidents of memory brings him forward as well, reawakens him, excites him, makes him believe in the world and himself. Beauty hasn't faded. It's always still there in his memory. It's ever-present. It's alive. Now he needs to record it to preserve it forever, and he has to outrace death to do so. You might think I'm describing the author now, and I sort of am, but I'm also describing the narrator. The narrator Marcel views this as his life's work, all the chasing he did, all the party going and friendships and loves and passions and observations, all the thinking and hoping and desperate longing to experience forms of beauty and art, understand people, meet the right people. Getting all that into his novel through a process of selection and arrangement, not just inventing a world, it's searching for one in his past, searching his mind and getting it onto the page, showing all these facts through the prism of his own artistic sensibility and portraying them in such an order and in such a context that it gives you, the reader, a sense of the unity of his world and the universality of its meaning. It's like a high-wire act. It's as if a gifted circus performer said, I'm going to stretch a rope across the Grand Canyon and walk that. Or maybe from the earth to the moon. Attach a rope. <laughs> Start walking from here to the lunar surface. 
that after it's over, you realize that he's expanded and, and defined what can be done in that field. It not only impresses us that he was good enough to do it, it redefines what we know about what can be done. What is his novel like? What is it like to read this book? I can tell you it's not easy to summarize. There are dozens, probably more than a hundred characters you learn to care about, and you start to care about Proust's themes, too. He cares about time and memory and how to live. He cares about beauty and art and art criticism. He loves things with deep passion, overwhelming passion. He's Oscar Wilde without the huge layers of irony to protect him. He's more vulnerable than that. He's Henry James with more transparency. He's Tolstoy with more ruminative energy. You fall into Proust the way you might slip into a warm bath. I used to love to take baths when I had more time to myself. Lie in there with a book, maybe a little glass of cold whiskey. I'd let a little water out and add some hot water keeping the temperature from getting too cold. I was reading. I was in heaven. I had found the perfect state, right? Isn't that the feeling when you're in a perfect bath? All you want is to keep the water at that perfect temperature for as long as you can. That's what being in Proust's world is like. I could read a passage if it would help you understand. I will do that, I guess. I should do that. But excerpts are a little like dipping just a toe in the bath. It's the slightest of introductions, but it really doesn't capture what that full immersion will feel like. I haven't really talked about the style of the book at all. It has long sentences, long paragraphs, deep layers of introspection, layers that spiral and spiral and spiral, keep going. I also haven't talked about Proust's idiosyncratic method of composition. Originally, the book, in his volumes, was 500,000 words. As he revised, he expanded, trying to capture the full import and context of the events and the moments, to really capture what it meant in all facets. Adding words and adding words and adding words until the finished version went from 500,000 words to more than twice that, 1,250,000 words. For those of you who don't think of books in terms of words, a Graham Greene novel might be around 60,000 words. This novel is 20 times as long. War and Peace has 587,000 words. This novel is more than double. His expansions came in the form of scribbled insertions, often overflowing the page onto fresh sheets that he then cut up and glued to the original typescripts so that he'd end up with long strips of edits to edits to edits, adding words, gluing edits onto the, onto the edits, adding more thoughts, going deeper, like a diver forcing himself to descend even further, even further. It reads like that too. You keep descending. You might think you're going to reemerge, skim the surface. There are times where it, it skips along like that, almost like a conventional novel, and you laugh and you smile. 
and you nod your head, and you're amazed at the sunshine beaming down on you and the cool breeze on your face as your boat skims across the surface. And then there are times where the boat has anchored and you're diving and you think, my God, this can't go any lower. And yet it does. And you think, surely we've reached the bottom by now. And yet there's still more. And finally, in the last volume and a half or so, you start to fully come up to see where all this has been headed and is headed. And you sense you're going to emerge, and then you do. You finally emerge from this world, and you get the great gulps of oxygen of having finished the thing in a way that will change you forever. That will let you see the world above water with a kind of clarity and appreciation that you never would have had had you not gone down to that ocean floor and spent all that time down there in that wondrous world. How could I ever capture that in a single passage? Well, we'll uh, we'll just give you a taste. Here are a pair from Swan's Way, the first volume. In this part of the book, Swan is at a salon listening to a piano where he hears a phrase that changes his life. It's one he's heard before. It's become as significant to him and as elusive as his fierce attachment to and alliance with Odette. Quote, But tonight, at Madame Verderan's, scarcely had the little pianist begun to play when, suddenly, After a high note held on through two whole bars, Swan saw it approaching, stealing forth from underneath that resonance, which was prolonged, and stretched out over it, like a curtain of sound, to veil the mystery of its birth, and recognized, secret, whispering, articulate, the airy and fragrant phrase that he had loved. And it was so peculiarly itself, it had so personal a charm, which nothing else could have replaced, that Swan felt as though he had met in a friend's drawing room a woman whom he had seen and admired once in the street and had despaired of ever seeing her again. Finally the phrase withdrew and vanished, pointing, directing diligent among the wandering currents of its fragrance, leaving upon Swan's features a reflection of its smile. But now, at last, he could ask the name of his fair unknown, and was told that it was the Andante movement of Ventuil's Sonata for the piano and violin. The second passage I'll read, and really I'm taking two out of a thousand I could choose from. The second passage is also from Swan's Way, where Marcel reflects on reading and travel. Quote, Had my parents allowed me when I read a book To pay a visit to the country it described, I should have felt that I was making an enormous advance towards the ultimate conquest of truth. For even if we have the sensation of being always enveloped in, surrounded by our own soul, still it does not seem a fixed and immovable prison. Rather do we seem to be borne away with it, and perpetually struggling to pass beyond it, to break out into the world 
with a perpetual discouragement as we hear endlessly all around us that unvarying sound, which is no echo from without, but the resonance of a vibration from within. We try to discover in things endeared to us on that account the spiritual glamour which we ourselves have cast upon them. We are disillusioned and learn that they are in themselves barren and devoid of the charm which they owed in our minds to the association of certain ideas. Sometimes we mobilize all our spiritual forces in a glittering array so as to influence and subjugate other human beings who, as we very well know, are situated outside ourselves, where we can never reach them. And so, if I always imagined the woman I loved as in a setting of whatever places I most longed at the time to visit, if in my secret longings it was she who attracted me to them, who opened to me the gate of an unknown world that was not by the mere hazard of a simple association of thoughts, no, it was because my dreams of travel and of love were only moments which I isolate artificially today as though I were cutting sections at different heights in a jet of water, rainbow flashing but seemingly without flow or motion, were only drops in a single, undeviating, irresistible outrush of all the forces of my life. End quote. Let's take one more break, and then we'll talk about why we care. Why do we care? In the first section, I talked about the events and experiences that have a lifelong impact. Proust's earliest activities, the people around him, his interests, his passions, the general events from a large structural scale of Catholicism or his parents to the minuteness of eating a Madeleine. They are all in him. They all register and resonate. They all matter. That's what Proust stands for, in my opinion. It's about being alive and in the world, letting the world wash over you, savoring details, not just for their own sake, but because you as a perceiving creature are valuable. You have merit. The things that happen to you matter because you matter. The world matters. The world is a beautiful place, and you are a beautiful creature. And the beautiful creature alive in this beautiful place is a glorious gift, a miracle worthy of celebration. And that's why Proust matters. It matters because when you read, you read about a great experience of the world and the way the world all gets filtered through that incredible mind of his. He's omnivorous. He takes art and literature and people and feelings and tastes and sights and smells. It all goes into that beautiful mind of his and it goes through his special sensibility and it gets transformed and comes out as this beautiful and intense prose. It's not quiet little sentences. The stream does not trickle. It's like a river that overflows its banks or races to the falls or the ocean that moves with the tides, an ocean of prose that can be quiet in its massive stillness or can rise and crash in a storm or can be as elemental as its partner the moon as they work their slow dance magic together. Proust captures that magic, the magic of being alive. He transmuted it into his novel. So go read some Proust. Don't think about it too much. Don't wrestle with it. Don't say, why are these sentences so long? Why should I care about this duchess or that duke? Why am I reading a hundred pages about a party? You're reading because 
No one else has ever taken on the project as deeply and successfully as Marcel Proust. It's an outstanding human achievement. No one has lived like him or written like him or been like him. We care about people like that and their product because they show us something. Michael Jordan, Mozart, Keats, Pavarotti, Proust. They are worth our time. I wrote a little piece about Proust once upon a time. I'm going to read it here, and I'll read it because it reminds me of a time when things were not so good. I was pretty down when Proust was on my mind. I was remembering better days, and looking back, those days when I was down were probably better than my my days today. And yet, I think life is getting better somehow. How does that work? I feel worse, and yet it's getting better. Optimism is deeply ingrained, I guess. This piece is called The Burger Car. Home from traveling, I climb into the gray Corolla. I've been a five guys dad lately, flying to Los Angeles for work and back home on weekends to take the boys to soccer and movies and the library and their favorite restaurant. It's not an ideal way to parent, but what can you do? My job requires it, and my life requires my job. As usual, I'm first. As I wait, The smell inside the car rises up and makes me shudder. Old burgers and fries. The smell of a grill. The smell of grease. I do not feel like I do when I'm on a sidewalk, and the hot fumes coming out of a bar make me hungry and eager to go inside. This smell is stale and disgusting, and I hate it. I've never liked this car. I was forced to buy it in a hurry, two cars in two days when moving here from New York and starting a new life. Everything was rushed then. Everything was secondary to trying to keep a toddler and an infant fed and clothed and safe. I overpaid for the car. My half of the negotiations still stands as a particularly disgraceful display of weakness on my part. Hate the car. And now I can't even muster up the energy to replace it. My wife never drives it. It sits here all week, its slaughterhouse smell trapped inside like the ghost of weekends past. The good times have faded, left behind like grease-splattered paper bags. With one exception, when a rat chewed through some hoses, the car has been dependable. I hate it anyway. I hate the color. It's too small, it's boring. The carpet is already practically destroyed. We've abused it with spills and mud and orange peels and juice boxes and crumbs. The car is filthy, inside and out. The windows are crusted with bird droppings. Crumbs and bits of leaves line every possible groove. Being in here makes me feel weak and unhealthy and ashamed. And now, there's the smell. The smell that conjures up all my frustrations. Here's Proust on his famous Madeleine, quote, And soon 
mechanically weary after a dull day with the prospect of a depressing morrow, I raised to my lips a spoonful of the tea in which I had soaked a morsel of the cake. No sooner had the warm liquid and the crumbs with it touched my palate, a shudder ran through my whole body, and I stopped, intent upon the extraordinary changes that were taking place. End quote. Extraordinary changes? Perhaps. But in my case, they were all going in the wrong direction. I started reading Proust in college when a professor everyone hated or feared, or both, assigned Swan's Way in a class called Towards Modernity. This professor said things like, I will be having office hours, or rather, an office hour, but I'm not going to tell you when it is. And, I have given an A before, once, but I regret it now and I won't be doing it again this year. A student complained that his grade, a D-, minus, practically unheard of in an English class for a student with perfect attendance and no missed assignments, could jeopardize his chances at getting into law school. Don't be worried, Mr. Parkanis, the professor responded. Law schools know me. Maybe they did. The rest of the world, however, for the most part, did not, which had soured the professor's outlook. A writer, he was known primarily for two reasons. One, he was friends with Saul Bellow and Philip Roth, and could be relied upon to give a good anecdote to any biographer working, writing about his famous friends. And two, he had famously missed the boat on Catch-22, cataloging its failures and declaring it was, quote, no novel, end quote, on the front page of the New York Times book review. Fifty years later, that review is still cited as an example of reviewer cluelessness. So this was the man, bitter and venomous in public, tender and sensitive in private, one hoped, who introduced me to Proust, who thrust it in our hands, demanded we read the first volume in a single week, then gave us a pop quiz, as if we were a bunch of high schoolers who couldn't be counted on to do the assigned work. Actually, the professor was big on pop quizzes. One question, long answers disfavored. The professor left the room after five minutes and sent a teaching assistant to pick up the results an hour and a half later. This was the question. Describe the importance of the little phrase. As soon as the door closed, everyone started grumbling. No one had read the book but me. They thumbed through the book to put together some kind of answer. Like this one. The little phrase refers to a passage from a sonata by the composer Vintuil. Obsessed with jealousy, gradually becoming aware that Odette might never return his love for her, Swan seeks out chances to hear the little phrase, forcing himself to listen to it to remind him of the time he first saw her. And then my fellow students jumped up, cursed the professor in his absence, and left to get on with their life. I stayed behind. In spite of everything, I had been inspired by this mad professor of ours, who had a zest for literature and life that he assumed we would not share. Except I did, and so I blew past the standard answer. First, I wrote everything I could remember about the sonata, and then everything that it meant to me and then everything I loved about the book, and everything I struggled with and did not understand. I wrote about the sonata, and Swan, and Odette, 
and Marcel and Cambrai and the Madeleine. Oh, yes. I wrote and wrote and wrote. It embarrasses me now to think that I wrote so much. Proust's memories make me wish I had an artistic soul, I said. But more than that, they make me want to live. I announced in those overflowing pages that the book had confirmed for me the path I should take in life. Not for me, the crabbed, pinched life, the office drone, the family man, the struggler. I was not going to be a nothing man. My time is now, I wrote. It's humiliating now, but there it is. I can't deny any of it. I wrote of my desire to build my memories, to travel and experience and absorb, to store them all away in, quote, the portmanteau that is my mind, end quote. Yes, yes, it was really this bad. Someday, I said, I will recall those memories, but only if they exist. How deep. My time is now, I wrote again and again, three times altogether. Yes, I really thought this. I really wrote it down on paper. And, having not finished before the TA arrived, took my stack of papers to the professor's office and slid them under his door. My time is now. For some reason, I wanted him to know that. Someone should invent a shredder that fits onto the bottom of a professor's door. Notes slid underneath are always regretted afterward, in my experience. After I thrust my ideas upon the man who did not care, my time is now, good Lord. I launched into a decade of wandering, of travel, of experiences. I sampled languages and religions and cultures and approaches to life. I stood breast to breast with the cosmos. I swallowed the universe and felt its secrets radiating out of my fingertips. My time was then. And then reality set in. The need for money and health insurance and some kind of retirement plan, the obligations of family. And before I knew what was happening, there I was, an office drone, a family man, a struggler. The words nothing man may as well have been tattooed on my forehead except that would have made me more interesting and relevant than I actually was. Proust's Madeleine gave him this, quote, An exquisite pleasure had invaded my senses, but individual, detached, with no suggestion of its origin. And at once the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to me, its disasters innocuous, its brevity illusory this new sensation having had on me the effect which love has of filling me with a precious essence, or rather, this essence was not in me, it was myself. I had ceased now to feel mediocre, accidental, mortal. End quote. Nice snack if you can get it. Sitting in the car, I feel exactly the opposite. Mediocre, accidental, mortal, check, Check, check. The door to my house slams shut. My sons, seven and five, are running toward me, lugging books for the journey. Time to put on my game face. Already my older son has exhibited a dangerous tendency to be as thinky as me, in spite of our best efforts to keep him young and carefree. I cannot let him know my thoughts. I cannot explain 
that the smell brings me bad memories, or even the concept that smells sometimes do this, because I know he'll dive in. He'll want to test the idea. He'll feel it, explore it, measure it against his own experience, imagine it, think his way through it, and someday wind up as overwhelmed as me. Giving him a set of ideas like that would be like tossing a kid a pack of matches and telling him to go play on the woodpile. I would feel as guilty as an alcoholic giving his son a drink at too early an age. No, it's tempting to share my ideas, but I can't be that irresponsible. He deserves better. My younger one, by contrast, runs free, psychically untroubled. Whether it's due to youth or his disposition, he feels things without the overlay of logic and introspection that burdens his older brother and me. I don't want to spoil that either, so I put on a game face for him too. The doors to the car open. Hi, Dad, says my older son, strapping himself in. He disappears into his book, which has wizards in it. The little one struggles to climb into his booster seat. It is his mission to manage the seatbelt on his own, without help. Hey, boys, I say, over enthusiasm, my strategy for pushing the gloom aside. Who's hungry? Keeping things to yourself is the hallmark of good parenting. I cannot let them know I have just had an existential crisis, a dull, familiar anger that the old, stale, worn-out interior of our car has summoned forth. They deserve better. And I deserve better. It's my sudden realization. The burger car cannot be my Madeleine. It doesn't have to be. Because I do have these other memories. I can reach back to the jingling sound that reminds me of a prayer wheel and transports me to Tibet or the smell of soy and garlic in a sizzling walk that pulls me back to the night markets of Taiwan, the hot sand under my feet that summons forth the island off the coast of Thailand, and the nights I spent listening to Billie Holiday and watching sunsets with a bartender named Sai, or the forkful of grilled salmon that brings me to the bed and breakfast in Alaska, or the sip of San Miguel that returns me to the nightclub in Manila, or the froth on the pint of Guinness that drops me back in the deep, smoky basement of the pub in the basement of Ida Noyes. I did all that. That was me. I have other memories to draw upon. Indeed, a whole portmanteau. My mind does not need to stay trapped in the car I don't like, dwelling in the gloom of my own weakness and stupor. I start up the car and honk the horn out of sheer excitement. My younger son looks around. He sniffs. It smells like daddy in here, he says to his brother. Then he buckles his seatbelt, looks at me in the road ahead, and smiles an uncomplicated smile. go. (laughs) I was his Madeleine, I guess. Maybe that's my job, human Madeleine, a tool for others. Ah, well. But you see why I care about Proust. If you gave me a list of historical periods I care about, his period might finish dead last. (laughs) But when I'm reading Proust, it's first. There's nothing more important. 
and you close the book and suddenly nothing matters other than the present. Everything that's happened is is bearing upon this single instant and your experience now, how you take it in and what you do and how you feel matters. And it will matter for the rest of your life. Proust tells us that your time is now. There's no other time. There's no other you. Live life like Marcel. Live life, period. Or maybe I should say, live life, exclamation mark. Okay, there we go, people. Marcel Proust. What a man. Let's all go try to be better. We are... (laughs) We're back. Well, I was going to say we're back, but I'm just not going to promise much. I don't want to let you down, but I'm happy to be here today, cranking out a show. Even as I struggle, my friends, I will admit that this felt like a joy. I feel young and alive and ready to take on the world. I hope you feel that way, too. And I hope you do it with love in your heart and not resentment and bitterness and hate. We have enough of that in the real world. Let's bring some love in there and some joy and some compassion. Let's fill the world with light. We can do it. I know we can. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time.